I think that any entity that is allowed to prosper in a society also has to pay back that society. Welcome to Drexel's 10,000 Hours Podcast. Our goal is to mine the stories behind our region's innovators, inventors, and thought creators. We'll be talking to experts in subjects from fashion to neuroscience to find out where their passion for work and inspiration for ideas comes from. I'm your host, Maurice Boehner. Barry Litsky is an associate professor of entrepreneurship in the Drexel University's Charles D. Close School of Entrepreneurship. A natural do-gooder, Barry's research focuses on topics like ethics and social entrepreneurship, and she's always looking for ways that business can change the world for the better. So we love the long and winding journey here at the 10,000. Where'd you grow up? What kind of kid were you? I grew up in Annapolis, Maryland. Um, Famous for boats. Famous for boats, famous for crabs. It's a really small town. Now it's not as small, but it still has a really small town feel. Um, and I was kind of a tomboy. Um, not like that I, you know, not that I played boy sports or stuff like that, but I just, I wasn't interested in, you know, being really girly. I had a lot of friends that were boys. Um, I didn't shy away from that. Um, and I what was What were you interested in as a kid? Partying. What kind of teenager were you? Partying. Led Zeppelin. How's the I loved How's music. the party scene in, in Annapolis? Um, and when I was a teenager, it was great because the rock and roll was great. Yeah. There were these big open field parties and, you know. Um, Where'd you go to college? I went to Towson State University How'd in you Baltimore. Choose, how did you choose Towson State? Uh, my best friend was going there. Good, good call. I was not... Uh, studious student i was really into just having a good time mm. i worked i worked part-time you know i worked what in were you a pizza. Doing? i worked in a like a t-shirt shop oh. you know in a tourist town people come in and they want to have Absolutely. decals and you know um and a pizza place and um i you know so i went to school and i worked and i hung out with my friends and um i just was like my friend said i'm gonna go to towson i said okay i'll go what i'll go you, there what were you majoring in I majored in business because huh. my parents told me if I majored in, like I really always loved, soci- I, I loved sociology and psychology in high school. Yeah, I loved the social sciences, but my parents told me, and probably a counselor I think must have said this, you know, if you major in something like that, you have to get a d- graduate degree to do anything, to have a career. Right. And I said, ugh, I'm never gonna do that. So, you know, I majored in business, which I didn't really like. Um, but I but marketing was my concentration and I kind of like that it was more cre- felt more creative yeah. Um, yeah so by default that's what I majored in and then by default I got an MBA because I started working in for a company that was going to pay for it and I thought it's the practical thing so to I was going to ask so yeah. you graduate with this degree that you're like ah, college yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> what's the first job you get with that degree uh, um well, I worked as an assistant manager in a clothing store for three months, but then I got offered. Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Maryland called. I, I had applied for a job there, and I got hired, um, and the job title was Secretary 3. Right. And it was $14,400 a year, and it was benefits, like sick benefits. 
And that's when, and that's where, then you know, and then I left the lodge and I went there and that started my corporate career. And I had really good mentors there who gave me stretch assignments and... Yeah. At what point did you say, okay, I'll get this MBA? And was it just because you could get paid more money at that, in that job? You know, I, I don't think I realized it at the time, too. but I'm so goal oriented. I'm just yeah. goal, you know, once I've... If I set my mind to something and then I achieve it, then I have to go to the next thing. I didn't know until all those years later that really that's what goal setting theory is. That's really what people who are achieved, who are achievement motivated intrinsically, that's what we do. We reach a goal and then we say, okay, what's next? Um, so I think without thinking about it too much, that's what happened. Like I was out of school, I was working full time and I was kind of like, um, well, they'll pay for your MBA here. And I, I don't even remember what influenced me. Honest to God, what um, I really don't. I think it was like, well, it seems like it would be a smart thing to do if the company I'm working for is going to pay for me to get a graduate degree, I might as well get one. Right. And that's basically how it happened. And I pissed and moaned about it the entire five and a half years it took me to the point where my mother kept saying, why don't you just quit? No, I started it, I can't quit. Who are you? You would never let me quit anything. Right, is there, know? Th what did you learn through that? I mean, now you teach graduate students, mm -hmm. right? And probably some of them are less than motivated yeah. to, to go on. What did you learn through that five and a half years that you can share with other I just people? think, you know, you have to find your passion, study what you're passionate about, not what you think is practical. You know, because then, fast forward after that, and I still, you know, ended up going back to school to study behavioral science in grad, you know, to get a PhD How's, in behavioral yeah. How's science. How's that happen, though? What, right. what decisions did you have to make? Um, it, it, it happened, I came through the back door in the sense that I wasn't somebody motivated by academic research. I was motivated by teaching. Mm. So, at, you know, my Blue Cross job eventually landed me into being a corporate trainer, and I did that for a while. And then I thought, when I finished my MBA, I thought, hey, I wonder if Towson, my alma mater, would hire me to teach at the undergraduate level. And I put in my resume and they said, sure. So, and as soon as I walked into the classroom, I thought, this is where, this is it. I found my home and I was only 28. And I knew even then I was really lucky. Yeah. Like I knew I was really lucky, like, this is it. I found my home. And, um, so then it became, what do I have to do to make a career out of this? Well, you have to get a PhD. And then I said, well, then I'm really gonna study what I wanna study, which is, you know. Right. And Drexel offered me, um, I got into Drexel, hmm. so I came to Drexel, and it ended up being a great place for me. Excellent. Okay, let's talk about social entrepreneurialism. Mm -hmm. Because I'm only gonna get that out well one time. Okay. <laughs> that was it. Um, okay, so. Talk a little bit about what constitutes uh, social entrepreneurialism for those who that's a new term or they don't really understand okay. what, it's, what its focus is. Okay, so the, um, it means different things to different people and academics can't come up with one definition because you know that's just what we do. Because they're can, academics. Because they're academics and can't agree on anything. Um, but the bottom line is social entrepreneurs tend are the, are the people who use innovative um, innovative, often market-based tools and responses mm -hmm. to solve social and environmental problems. Mm -hmm. um, Can you give a good example? Okay, so a good example would be, um, there are clothing, there are secondhand clothing stores 
that people can donate the clothing and then the clothing can get, uh, you know, like upscale, they call it, or upcycled. And then women who are um, coming, maybe formerly incarcerated women who are going out on the workforce right. can go to these places and can get dressed and ready and, and also um, um, re- prepared for interviews and there can be Got resume it. writing and, and that kind of a thing. And so um, that would be one example. Profit and. Profit and, um, and social good. Some of them, and you know, um, some people only think of nonprofits as social I was going to say, social this mission. almost always seems like nonprofit. But they can be, but, but they can be for profit also. So for example, Tom's Shoes. Yeah. Tom's Shoes, you know, buy a pair, give a pair. Right. That's a social. That's a social venture. You know, that's United a, by Blue. United cl- by Blue, yeah, our local they, Philadelphia company. Right. So they that's clean, a social venture. They, cl- they make money and they clean the ocean. So yeah, that's a great example here. And Philadelphia actually um, has a, a great. We have a great. Um, I'm on the board of an organization called the Sustainable Business Network of Greater yeah. Philadelphia. Um, I think there are 700 member businesses. These are all businesses that strive to um, operate. That strive to measure the triple bottom line, so people, profit, planet, right? Or in business terms, would be you know economic profits, social output, and environmental output. Um, and to measure those, and to know what their you know what their output is, and to try and manage that stuff. So you know, um, and we have a great. This region is phenomenal for that. So any, I w- I think that any social that a social entrepreneur for me is someone who's very concerned with um, making sure that in addition to making money that their business or products are serving an entity that's going to make someone's life better so I have a very broad definition um, and some folks have a very narrow definition do you see a world where that becomes the standard model. So we stop thinking just about the law of supply and demand, and you can't even have a business. It's not even thought of as a business unless you're making the planet better in some way. I think that um, in some point, maybe, you know, maybe not in my lifetime, but what we've been calling social entrepreneurship for 20 years, maybe at some point in another 40 years might just be called entrepreneurship. Right. We'll call it business. Business. It's, business. it's just, or, you know, because even business. in, even in like at the close school, we have three minors or three concentrations, social, corporate, and new venture. And even corporate innovations and even new ventures, I mean, social entrepreneurs can also have new ventures, create new ventures, and people who are majoring in new ventures and want to start, you know, a tech company can also have a social or environmental component to it. So, you know, and corporate corporations can innovate in that space also, you know. Um, I mean, God, if the big car companies, if the big three auto manufacturers in the 70s had started um, making fuelless cars, then instead of... And I'm not making this up. Hiring companies to do publish research that mm-hmm. says that carbon monoxide is not bad for the environment, right. and lobbying against it. How different would our world be? How different would our country be? We'd all have electric cars. We'd all have electric cars for one thing. And guess what? Big trucks could be electric too. Right. They would have figured it out long before now, and it would have been become affordable long before now. Do you like me get the feeling that? If we put enough effort into it, we can figure it all out. I mean, if you can get to the moon with, like, duct tape and and plastic, then 
Yeah. You certainly can figure out how to desalinate water cheaply or how to build a battery that'll And people are doing it. A truck. Like a lot of times we'll see things in the de- you know in emerging or developing economies right. um, or still more agrarian economies. Um, and so I you know I think the lines are blurring and that's you know back to your question about do, do I feel optimistic? I think that you know kids are interested in um, doing things that serve you know, that serve others in there. You know, I mean, we, you know, they can't get away from knowing how bad, you know, the environment is. You know, they were born into it. Hmm. Um, so they, I think they have a pretty good, you know, idea that they can also, and also there are so many more examples now of companies that do well and still make a lot of money, you know? And even companies that are like B corporations or benefit corporations, um, who um, are on the stock exchange, you know, that, that had IPOs. So, I, you know, I think there's examples out there. And, yeah, maybe one day it'll just be commerce. So if, if a future president names you head of business here in the country, that probably already exists. I just don't know what you call that secretary. Yeah. Um, what's the first thing you... It's probably secretary de- of commerce. Probably. What's the first thing you deploy? Oh boy. Um, that's a really hard question. I think because um, there are so many business regulations that were put in place like in the 1930s through the 1960s or even the 70s that are, I think, have largely been ignored like antitrust legislation. Right. Um, I think the first thing I would do is say, all the laws that are on the books, every corporate, you know, does the law still make sense? Right. And every, cor- you know, are the corporations right. abiding by it? And I would say, you know, um, no more lobbying. Nobody would, first of all, no president would ever ask me to do that because I'm, they think that I'm, you know, they would think that my ideas <laughs> were bad and they probably are. But, you know, no lobbying, no special interest, none of that, you know, don't don't try and buy and sell anything that you wouldn't buy or sell, that you wouldn't buy for your mother or your child. It's you know and um, do you break up Twitter and Facebook? I don't know about breaking them up, but I know like Amazon. As much as I love it, it's mm. big. It's right. big, <laughs> and the banks are big. They're too big. They're Amazon's, too big. Amazon's really big. Amazon's really big. Um, I believe in local business. You know, I believe in local. I'm a proponent of local economy. You know, I try and buy things that are local. So you're willing to trade off um, sort of that amazing convenience of I tell you a book while we're talking and you can have it in two hours in a um, over at Whole Foods. I'm in not a always I'm not always willing to trade. I mean, put it this way. I do both, but I try and make a conscious effort to support my um the shops in my neighborhood Hmm. i do do that but the shops in my neighborhood probably don't have that book in which case i will probably probably don't right yeah i'll order it on amazon (laughs) yeah but yeah i I don't i don't think being that big is so i don't think it's so great you know i think it's you know we just get away from we get away from things what idea important things what idea or concept are you really excited about right now I'm really excited about how 
small to medium-sized local businesses can change their communities for the better. And I've been wanting to study that for a really long time. And um, Could you describe, what's a small to medium-sized okay, business? Okay, so like a mom and pop? Could yeah. be like a mom and pop. Okay. Um, anything, I would say local or regional. Right. So something that would be so a Philadelphia company like a United by Blue. So something, yeah. you know, that's that's here that's concentrated in this right. area right. and the influence that they have on their immediate, you know, um, uh, community. Yeah. Um, so maybe I shouldn't even quantify the size of the business, right. but it's te- those tend to be the ones that are, you know, here their head. Qu- even if it's a large company, their headquarters are here. They op- they operate in communities elsewhere. Yeah. I'm concerned about like sort of one community at a time mm. um, and how those businesses influence policy and um, job opportunities, you know, and and good environmental, you know, protection or advocacy. Um, look, all the all the big companies have foundations and they all have things that they, you know, American Express has 10,000 small businesses and they have things that they can do and that's great. Yeah. But I'm more interested in the smaller I'm more interested in the businesses that the that you you and I can know the people who run it yeah and we have access to the decision makers because either we see them in their shops or we eat in their restaurants or we see them at chamber meetings or something like that yeah. do you know what I mean I do and um and I'm just curious and so and and because Philadelphia has this great region of all these really sort of um conscientious shop owners business owners we also have really deep poverty yeah and so some of the deepest some of the deepest in the country and we have one of the most sustainable business you know local living economies in the country yeah and so um that dichotomy has been really interesting to me for a while (laughs) and i'm trying to i've been trying to focus on how to study it and I think I may have found a way, and it's not um, its not about um, how those businesses can help to alleviate poverty, which was the original way I wanted to frame it, but it's um, how they can, or what role they play in, in addressing issues of economic insecurity. Hmm. What's the difference? Economic insecurity sounds like a fancy way of saying poverty. Poverty. Um, I think it's more, poverty is about you know numbers and your income. Economic insecurity is more about where you're going to get your money, right. what your opportunities Understood. are for for you know supporting yourself. Right. So it's more like about you know seeing how the system is affected rather than the ultimate outcome. Do you think people are becoming more and more economically insecure? Oh yeah. I, like I'm thinking about Uber drivers. Where, yes, if you get up every day right. and you drive for 10 hours, you yeah. might be able to pay your rent. Yeah. But if you stop one day yeah. or get in an accident, right? Yeah. You're, you're essentially unemployed. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's this great um, publication called Broken Philly. Oh, and yeah. it's a, um, I don't want to get this wrong. It's, a, it's an amalgamation of journalistic pieces from maybe 20... Um, publications in the area, the region. Mm-hmm. So including the Inquirer, but a, a, yeah. a lot of other um, Philadelphia um, news outlets. And they 
every week they combine um, a series of articles that have been published that address economic insecurity. And part of their project as journalists is trying to get their heads around trying to measure, you know, and see how do you measure? How do you first of all, where are these pockets of economic insecurity? What are the causes? What are you and I, if I you know, what if I ask you, what does it mean to be broke? Yeah. You know, they they've started doing um some interviewing and things like that. And so I may have the opportunity colleagues of mine That's from great. Temple and I are hopefully gonna be doing some stuff with them. It's really um you know, and so that's helped frame my thinking a little bit. Um, I just know studying poverty is like an it's an economic study hmm. where I'm more interested in seeing what the you know the actual pe- you know how the people what are the people are yeah affected. how the people are affected. Okay. So let's just talk a little bit about how you got into focusing on ethical business and when you realized this is something that was really important to you and you wanted to focus on it long term um what there was no like you know epiphany it was more about being raised in a home where um you know my parents were constantly reinforcing ideas about um equity and justice and i can remember like tv shows coming on or commercials and my mother going sexism you know or my father going sexism like that was like they like i remember them getting their consciousness woken by things that happened every single day um, that were really sort of, gen, you know, n- not cool, you know, not not fair to women. And the same had to do with, you know, race. So I was raised in this, you know, really just this, this, I just always knew what was right, you know, what was socially just and what was economically just. And I think just as an adult, um, first I was really interested in studying individual behavior and what made individuals kind of tick. Um, but I don't know. I just the the fascination that I have that people that you know a business isn't inherently bad or inherently good. It's the people that make up you know that make up these large institutions that just continually over and over and over and over again make bad decisions hmm. and that hurt people. It fascinated me with first feeling like how is that possible that these just, you know, people that get into these positions of power and they just keep screwing up, even if their intentions initially were, you know, it's like that, you know, that um, absolute power corrupts absolutely. But then it just kind of became from the sort of became like a moral outrage from so every the way I was raised to, you know what business, you know what big business, screw you. You have a moral obligation. You're a participant in this society. You're an entity in this society, and you have a moral obligation to make the world a better place. And so my my mission became teaching business and entrepreneurship students that, you know, we all have that moral obligation. It has been a real pleasure to talk to you this afternoon. It's been a pleasure to talk to you too. Really, it's been fun. Drexel's 10,000-hour podcast is hosted by me, Maurice Baynard. Our producers are Sean Fitzpatrick and Nathan Barrett. Drexel's 10,000-hours podcast is powered by Drexel University Online.